I bring you greetings from Bishop Susan this morning, who having been with you recently to celebrate the new ministry of your new priest is in Chesapeake this morning, celebrating the new ministry of the new priest called by the people of St. Thomas. She sends you her best. I come here among you this morning as I do anywhere I go in the diocese as canon to the ordinary. It is an odd term, but in a church that calls a plate, a paten, a cup, a chalice, a towel, a purificator, and an offering, a pledge, it is no surprise that we have another term to describe the canon who serves as staff officer or principal assistant to the bishop and spearheads whatever the bishop assigns, which in my case includes parish transitions. Incidentally, it is the bishop who is the ordinary, a dated term that traces its origins to the far-reaching function of the bishop and to the jurisdiction that the bishop holds, or as a consequence is, called, is said to have ordinary jurisdiction versus delegated jurisdiction. And so in short, the bishop came to be called the ordinary. But just for clarification, I am not the ordinary canon, <laughs> as I am sometime mistakenly introduced, but the canon to the ordinary. There is a difference, <laughs> at, at least I like to think. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, entering this place of worship, coming to be here with you again this morning brings me a deep sense of joy. I have loved Christ and St. Luke since I first stepped through the doors. I have loved the spirit of the place. I've loved the spirit that you, the people of this parish, impart. I've loved experiencing here what so many experience here, the finding of a spiritual home. It's been a pleasure for me to work with your incredibly talented vestry and lay leaders as they navigated your recent transition and the search for your new priest. It's been heartening and humbling to work with your retired clergy who devoted themselves to the well-being of this parish throughout the transition and still do. And it is deeply rewarding to sense and to know that the one who is faithful to each of you and to this parish has called Father Noah here to assure that you continue to prosper. Yeah, coming here does indeed bring me a deep sense of joy and wonder. But not only for the reasons that I just mentioned. You see, I was raised in a parish that has a strong resemblance, the Cathedral of St. Philip in Atlanta, Georgia. A strong resemblance as a place of worship, although we didn't have quite so much scaffolding. <laughs> a strong resemblance as a people of faith. A strong resemblance as a community that embraces and imbues faith. As a young boy at the cathedral, I joined the boys' choir and donned a cute 
purple robe with a white ruffled collar, the picture of which became part of our family photo album, as you might imagine, and a copy of which my sister photoshopped into a fake Time magazine cover for a significant birthday of mine several decades later. Hosted, incidentally, for those of you who know him, by Nigel Beardsley. <laughs> but there are two things I remember keenly about singing in the choir at the cathedral. One is that the choir master, Ron Rice, worked and worked and worked with us so that on Christmas Eve, from a balcony far above the nave, we could hit the soaring soprano notes of an anthem that put to music the prayer of Psalm 90, appealing to God, prosper thou the work of our hands. Oh, prosper thou our handiwork. The other thing I remember is that a few months later when my voice began to change, Ron Rice pulled me aside and suggested that perhaps I would like to consider becoming an acolyte. <laughs> but that verse, prosper thou the work of our hands, O oh, prosper thou our handiwork, or as our current prayer book puts it, prosper the work of our hands, prosper our handiwork, has long struck me its impassioned appeal penetrating my conscience long after I'd lost the ability to hit the notes. Prosper us, O Lord. Grammarians among us would be quick to point out that this word prosper is what it is grammatically and what it isn't. It is a verb, a term of action, not an adjective describing a state of being. Moreover, our subconscious tendency in America to understand prosper is to understand it as an intransitive verb, meaning succeed, progress, thrive, flourish, make good, become rich, which comports with our temptation to glorify personal achievement. But the ancients understood and used prosper as a transitive verb, meaning to make successful, to cause to progress or thrive, to enable to flourish, and correspondingly to make it possible to do good, to afford the opportunity to grow rich. Now, if you're from England or anywhere where British English is spoken, as it is on my GPS, you may be perplexed by this dichotomy because British English admits of both understandings. But if we're to understand the appeal to God to prosper the work of our hands, indeed, if we're to make it our prayer, then we need to understand that asking God to prosper us is asking God to make it possible for the work of our hands to succeed. Today's readings, without once using the word prosper, turn our attention to that very thing. Not to prospering in the sense of being or becoming prosperous for our own benefit, no. But to the action of God in us and through us, making possible the good that we seek to attain 
prospering the life and ministry that we share, putting wind in our sails, pulling us in new and promising directions, putting to work the resources we commit and the pledges we make for the mission and ministry that God entrusts to us. It is in that sense that each of the readings today seeks to evoke in us a prayer that God will prosper the work of our hands, the work of this parish, the work of the gospel. In our passage from Luke's gospel, Jesus tells a parable that exposes the stark difference between trusting in ourselves and our own handiwork and trusting in God's. Two people went up to the temple, Jesus says, to pray. One religious, as it happened, the other not. The religious one, standing apart by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. I am upright. I do the right thing. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of my income. The other one, standing far off, wouldn't even look up. Instead, he prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The first one took pride in not being like other people. The second swallowed hard over being all too much like so many others and prayed for mercy. The first believed that God had already prospered him. The second prayed that God would prosper him by showing mercy. Suppose for a moment there had been a third person to enter the temple that day to pray, and that person was you or me. What would our prayer have been? I wonder. In Paul's second letter to Timothy and to us, he characterizes his being poured out as a libation, his utter and total self-giving as God's prospering of what he had done and who he had been. No, Paul does not say, I poured myself out as a libation, but instead, I am being poured out as a libation. He spoke as the ancients spoke, understanding that it is the action of God that makes possible anything we strive for or attain. After famously saying, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, Paul immediately clarifies, the Lord stood by me and gave me strength. The Lord, prospering the work Paul was given to do, helping him to persevere against the odds, shaping him into the person of faith he sought to become. Then in Sirach, known as Ecclesiasticus, wisdom literature folded into the Apocrypha, the teacher we hear from today says, Give to the Most High as he has given you, and as generously as you can afford. Take stock 
The teacher is saying, of all that God has given you, and give to God with that same spirit of abundance. For the Lord is the one who repays, he says, and will repay you beyond your imagining. The one who has enabled you to prosper will prosper you in your giving and in your reaching to give generously, Sirach tells us. It makes you think. So too does the perspective of Christine Lagarde, president of the European Central Bank. Describing her role with ECB, she says, I look under the skin of countries' economies to help them make better decisions and be stronger, to prosper. Now, Ms. Lagarde does not believe she is God, I'm confident, though some bankers sometimes might seem like they think that. But her words make me wonder what would happen if with similar purpose, God would look under our skin and help us make better decisions and be stronger to prosper. Indeed, God does get under our skin sometimes if we're honest and we're the better for it. One of the ways that God got under my skin from an early age was by teaching me a lesson about what it means to prosper a person. It all began after I returned to Atlanta following a summer vacation in Virginia Beach. While here in Tidewater, our family visited longtime friends Ed and Hazel Rouse. They lived on Thurgood Drive. Ed took me to the shore of the Chesapeake while I was here and sparked the very sense of awe and wonder that brought me back here to live when the Navy sent me ashore for the last time. He took me to a traveling carnival, and when that Ferris wheel pod we were on reached the noon position and the wind began to blow it back and forth, Ed taught me how to ease my fear by looking to the horizon not downward. An insight I've relied on many times since. After I returned to Atlanta, Ed wrote me a letter every few weeks. A letter just for me. And tucked a one dollar bill inside the envelope each time, just to help me, well, prosper. I'd always write him back. One day, when I was preparing to seal the envelope, it occurred to me that each time Ed wrote me a letter, he sent me a dollar, even though I never sent any money to him. Which got my entrepreneurial side, thinking that maybe if I put a nickel in my letter to Ed, he'd send me five dollars next time. <laughs> Convinced that my idea was brilliant, I did exactly that. And when Ed's reply arrived a few weeks later, I ran with it back to my room, tore the envelope looking for green. But there was no green in that envelope. Just a nice letter from Ed, chatting about life in Tidewater, letting me know he believed in me. Because Ed wanted to prosper me, he realized that he had to stop sending me dollar bills. And do you know, he never said a thing about it. 
ever. He just kept sending me letters every few weeks, letting me know he cared. It really got under my skin and stayed there to this day, reminding me what it means to prosper someone. I sometimes think there's something of that little boy in all of us. But I also think there is something of Ed in all of us if we seize our opportunity. We won't be God, of course, just because we watch for ways to help another to prosper. But we'd be like God and share in God's work, which could change everything. Teresa Avila recognized that in a singular way, really. A 16th century mystic and author of the Interior Castle discovered through prayer how important it is that we give of ourselves, of what we have and of who we are, so that the work of God will prosper. Her conviction put to music by John Michael Talbot might just get under your skin. Ponder this. Christ has no body now but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks with compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes, you are his body. Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks with compassion on this world. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. Prosper, O oh Lord. Prosper the work of our hands. Amen.